Thank you for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. When that April with his sure assault, the draught of March hath bursted to the road, and bathed every vein its switch liquor of which virtue engendered is the floor. <laughs> <laughs> what is this accent? One zephyrus eke with his sweet breath inspired hath in every halt and heath the tenderer croppers, and the younger son hath in the ram his half a course run, and smaller fowlers make a melody that slippin' all the night. With open ye. So pricketh him that you're in here courages, that long on folk to go on pilgrimages. And palmers for the sake and stranger sons, the fair halways, cuther in sundry lawns, and specially from every shire's end of Engerland, to counterbray their wind, the holy blissful martyr for to seek, that him hath holpen when that they were seek. That was brilliantly read, Dominic. So, as every British <laughs> or English school child will know, that is the opening, the beautiful opening to The Canterbury Tales by Geoffrey Chaucer. And Tom, one of the great passages in English literature. Yeah, and you did wonderful credit to it. And let's be honest, nobody knows what it means. <laughs> Some people do. Well. So Neville Coghill did who was the great scholar who translated it for the Penguin Classics, yeah. which I originally gave you to read. Yeah. But you said, no, full in. No. Let's go for the Middle English. Yeah, you've got to do it properly. We don't mess around with modern translations. I mean, I've been criticised for weird accents, but I thought that was a very weird accent. Yeah, but I mean, you're dissing our predecessors. You're dissing our ancestors with that. Is that what they sounded like? That is how they sounded. Brilliant. There's a bit of Scandinavian in there, which people may have picked up on. <laughs> it's sort of Germanic. Yeah. That is the purest and most unadulterated Middle English, Tom. Well, that's wonderful. So, Tom, okay. So, Chaucer, who was born in around 1342 and dies in 1400, yeah. his life covers pretty much the span of all the episodes that we've been doing on the Hundred Years' War. Right. So, the reign of Edward III and Richard II. Yeah. So, I thought we couldn't really do the reign of Richard II and not talk about Chaucer because he's such a massively significant figure. So, the Canterbury Tales... I love it. Yeah. I'm not going to lie. I do love it. Yeah. Uh, for reasons that perhaps we'll come to in a few minutes. 
You said that uh, people study him in school. I mean, he's probably the one figure from the reigns of Edward III and Richard II who is still part of the curriculum, wouldn't you say? Well, he's the founding father of English literature, but he's also somebody, Tom, I think it's fair to say, and we might as well be honest with the listeners, the very mention of Chaucer's name generally leaves people pale with fear because he's got a formidable reputation. Basically, nobody knows what on earth it means. <laughs> and people have been forced to do it in school. Yeah. And they find it utterly intimidating and terrifying. But I'm confident that you're going to explain. I hope so. He is a fascinating person. The Canterbury Tales is brilliant and really funny and exciting and interesting. And there is no better window onto medieval England than through Chaucer and his great poem. Is that right? So I think one thing just for people to kind of reset the gears in their head is that we think of him as being very old because, I mean, he's kind of 14th century, so he is old. But he's also, in the context of the 14th century, very radical, very modern, very new. He is the guy who invents the word newfangledness. So he is newfangled. So just keep that in your mind. Try and think of him not as this venerable figure, but as someone who is at the absolute cutting edge of everything that is transformative in the 14th century, all the kind of the trends that we've been talking about. And so, as you said, I mean, he is kind of enshrined as the father of of English literature, which makes him sound very patriarchal and forbidding. Literally in Westminster Abbey. Absolutely. So his tomb in Westminster Abbey, it provides the kind of nucleus around which Poet's Corner has grown up. But he is also, I think, as you suggested, a fascinating window onto all the themes and episodes that we've been talking about. And he's a a poet who has an immense significance for me. He's one of those writers who I read at a very kind of formative time, which was actually, I mean, not long ago, it was in the, the pandemic. Okay. Because in April 2020, I was meant to be walking with my brother across the North Downs in Kent. So pretty much along the route that the pilgrims would have taken from London Mm. to Canterbury. We should say, we haven't really said what the Canterbury Tales is about. Basically, it's about a group of pilgrims who are going from London to Canterbury. Yeah. So we would have been following in their footsteps. And then, of course, the lockdown, it didn't happen. And so I started reading the Canterbury Tales instead. Because the backdrop was the pandemic, I was alert to all kinds of things that I hadn't really noticed before. So on the question of why the pilgrims are heading to Canterbury. Yeah, I think that was very clear from the reading, to be honest. Well, to Canterbury they went, the holy blissful martyr for to seek, that hem hath holpen when that they were sick. Yeah. So basically, the holy blissful martyr is Thomas Beckett, Ah. and he's going to cure them. The shrine in Canterbury where he was murdered is celebrated for its miracles, and Chaucer actually had very good reason to hold Beckett in particular high regard. So Mm -hmm. he grew up in London in um, one of the parishes there of St. Martin Vintry that had an altar to St. Thomas. And as an adult, he was always kind of going on business from London to Calais. So he would have passed through Canterbury. He would undoubtedly know the shrine very, very well. And I think that In April 2020, when everyone is thinking, when is this pandemic going to end? When are we going to get a vaccine? All that kind of stuff. The idea of people looking for cures seemed much more resonant (laughs) than it might have done earlier before the pandemic. Right. And Chaucer, of course, had himself lived through a pandemic that made COVID look like the mirror split. The Black Death. Which was the Black Death. And so, you know, he's born in 1342. And the Black Death arrives in England in the summer of 1348. So he would have remembered that, six years old. Right. And notoriously, you know, Chaucer is a Londoner 
and it hits London very, very hard. So Chaucer's great-grandfather had kept a, a pub. His grandfather had been a wine merchant. His father was hugely significant in the London wine import business. In fact, so significant that he ends up doing it by appointment to the king. And it's because of that that the Chaucer family dodge a bullet because they get sent to Southampton the year before the Black Death arrives. And even though obviously it's on the south coast where the Black Death first appears and it definitely hits it, it doesn't hit Southampton and the towns along the south coast as badly as London. And this may be what enables Chaucer to live because pretty much all his relatives in London are wiped out by the Black Death. And this, in fact, is the making of Chaucer because his mother and his father both inherit substantial amounts of property right. as a result of all their relatives being killed and gives Chaucer a kind of a massive head start. So his parents end up very, very affluent. So that must be a scarring memory for him. And the Black Death keeps revisiting England throughout his life. And by the time, so in the reign of Richard II, that he, he comes to write the Canterbury Tales, it's endemic in London. I mean, London has kind of recovered. Mm. So we talked about this in the Peasants' Revolt episodes. You've got cranes everywhere and high rises and it's booming city. Right. But the plague is endemic and it is a constant background presence. Yeah. And you wouldn't actually be able to tell that from the Canterbury Tales unless you were looking for it. So there are very few references to it. So in a tale that is told by a knight, you have the terrifying figure of Saturn who boasts that his very gaze, my looking is the father of pestilence, he said. Mm. And then there's, have you read The Pardoner's Tale? I don't think I have, Tom, I'm ashamed to say. So The Pardoner's Tale, there are three riotous friends and they're told news of a guy who's been killed. And there came a privy thief, men clepeth death, that in this country all the people slayeth, and with his spear he smote his hurter too, and went his way without word is more. He hath a thousand slain this pestilence. So that's a description of one of the great cycles of the play coming. Yeah. I feel you're not leaning into the accent there, Tom, but apart from that, it's fine. I'm not, no, no. But I mean, if you want to redo it, maybe, maybe later. No, no, no. Okay. <laughs> so the writers go in search of death to kill death and they get told that death is to be found under a tree and they go to this tree and there is a huge great chest of gold and they immediately forget about their search for death and they decide that one of them should go into town to get a cart so they can take away all the gold. He goes into town, decides that he's going to poison his friend, so get some wine, put some poison in, it goes back. Meanwhile, the two friends have decided that they're going to kill the third guy and divide the money up between the two of them. They do that. They then drink the wine and they all die and death is found. No. Oh. So it's a brilliant story and made all the more kind of complex. And one of the reasons why Chaucer is a brilliant poet, that mm. it teaches a tremendous moral the partner is a kind of a preacher, but he's also a loathsome man. What he's doing is basically flogging off bogus relics. You know, he tells these stories and then he screws money out of people. Right. So yeah, brilliant stuff, brilliant stuff. Yeah. But it's also a story that is rooted in experience because this idea that people respond to plague by behaving in a riotous way, this is absolutely a given, the idea that wild living is a response to death. And English moralists look at London in particular and say that wild living has been a theme of how they respond to the plague. So Thomas Walsingham, who we talked about, he's one of the chroniclers of the Peasants' Revolt. Yeah, He says of Londoners, of all people, they were the proudest, the most arrogant, the most greedy. So that idea that you respond to plague by you know, behaving in a wild way, this is kind of rooted in lived reality. But of course, wild living isn't the only response to plague. There is also pilgrimage. Yeah. 
And I think that this is the context for the whole motif of the Canterbury Tales, because what happens is that Chaucer describes himself going to Southwark, to a pub called the Tabard, and he's going on pilgrimage. And while he's there, he meets with nine and 20 people, so 29 people, and they all meet up and they all agree that Chaucer will go with them and they will head off to Canterbury together. And this is the basis for all the stories that then follow. And it struck me when I was reading this in April 2020, that this is exactly what we couldn't do. We couldn't meet up with people. We couldn't meet up with strangers in pubs. All the pubs were shut. You know, you had to socially distance. Right. And that in a way, perhaps the Canterbury Tales is a celebration of getting out there and meeting new people and being able to travel. Because, you know, that famous, famous opening line, when that apple with his sure as suitor, the sweet showers falling. Mm -hmm. April is the month when the plague season ends in London. So we know from the records of deathbed wills that January and February and March are the most lethal months for plague in London and in fact across Northern Europe. And so April is when the plague ends. And even though people in the 14th century, you know, they had no notion of germ theory, they absolutely had a sense that when plague hits, you should socially distance. Right. So one of Chaucer's great inspirations for, you know, telling a series of short stories is the Decameron by Boccaccio, the great Italian writer. And his kind of framing device is that the plague has hit Florence and people decide that they're going to retreat from Florence and kind of wall themselves up in a safe place in a garden where no one can get at them. So there is this sense that when plague hits, you isolate. I think the Canterbury Tales is the reverse of that. It's about saying plague season is over. Mm -hmm. We can all meet up. Let's head out there. So in a sense, the Canterbury Tales is a great eulogy to the joys in a time of plague of meeting strangers and of not socially distancing. See, I actually enjoyed socially distancing and not meeting strangers, but that's by the by. <laughs> so you, you would have hated hanging out with the partner and the night and everybody. I wouldn't enjoy that at all. Brilliant. But I think it's kind of interesting because it's one example of the way in which Chaucer's biography is repeatedly touching on all the great themes of the age. Remind us again when he was born, 1342, did you say? Around 1342. So he's right there with the ringside seat and the high point for England of the Hundred Years' War, right? He is. And when you say ringside seat, I mean, in some senses, literally, he's watching the great tournaments that Edward III is throwing to celebrate his victories because... The wealth that his parents have accrued both by their own agency and because all their relatives have died and left them their property means that he is able to get social promotion. So as a young man, he is a page in the household of Lionel, who we mentioned in the previous episode. He's the third son of Edward III, right. the ancestor of Edmund of March, who should have legitimately succeeded Richard II. Chaucer is a page in his household and he's, we know, tremendously stylish. So he's a guy who wears a paltock which is a very short garment, which moralists, again, are very opposed to. They fail to conceal the arse of the person who wears it or their private parts. Is that a quotation? That is indeed a quotation. Okay. You know, nice to think of Chaucer sporting that as a young lad. Right. And you know he's a witness to the golden age of the court of Edward III, and he goes on war with Edward. So in 1359, he accompanies him on one of his great chevauchets, the one that ends up before Paris and they don't manage to capture the city. So one of these raids, one of these kind of burning and pillaging raids. Yes. And in 1360, Chaucer is captured and he ends up being ransomed for 15 pounds by Edward III himself. So he, he's witnessed the Hundred Years' War. He's witnessed both its glories and mm. you know, its, its horrors. And actually the tale that is told by the knight, it's the first of the tales in the Canterbury Tales, 
There's a lot about captivity. There's a lot about the horrors of war. There's a lot about the kind of destruction and carnage that's inflicted about it. And I think that you get the sense both from Chaucer's poetry and from his career that he's not a great fan of fighting. He turns out to be a natural diplomat. So he goes on a lot of expeditions to places that, again, people who've listened to our series on the Hundred Years' War recognize. So he goes to Navarre, mm. the home of Charles the Bad, the brilliantly named Charles the Bad. Yeah. And he goes to Italy a lot. Very, very influential on his development as a poet, because Italy at this point is a place where poets like, well, Dante would be you know, the most celebrated example, are starting to write in their own language rather than in Latin. Yeah. And this, of course, is what Chaucer will do. So it's often said that Chaucer is writing in English, perhaps because he's, you know, he's hostile to foreign influences. He's a kind of literary Brexit or something like that. Yeah. He's a literary Farageist. He's actually very Remain. Right. Because he's writing in English because he's being influenced by continental styles. So that's what he's trying to do. Yeah. Yeah. He's a very cosmopolitan, very well connected man. So he's cosmopolitan, both because he's traveled on the continent, but also the reason he's been sent on the continent is because he can speak Italian, because he's grown up in one of the most cosmopolitan wards in London. It's full of Italian merchants, Flemish merchants. He's having daily dealings with them. So he speaks, you know, obviously he can speak French, he can speak Latin. He's very, very kind of sophisticated, but he's also well-connected because, you know, he's been a page in Lionel's court, but he also ends up amazingly with a, a family relationship to John of Gaunt. So the most powerful magnate, yeah. Towering figure. So amazingly, his sister-in-law, who comes from Haino, like Philippa, who marries Edward III, his sister-in-law ends up marrying John of Gaunt and becoming the Duchess of Lancaster. So Chaucer, you know, from this very humble background, has a kind of very distant family link to the great man. And when he's traveling to Italy, he's doing it as John of Gaunt's agent. And this is embroiling him in London politics because, again, I mean, looking back to the Peasants' Revolt episode, John of Gaunt is unpopular because he is basically hawking off licenses to Italian merchants and to Lombard merchants and to Fleming merchants, allowing them to participate in the wool trade or whatever, because he's trying to raise money for the crown. And this is hugely opposed by monopolists in London who want to keep yeah. The wool trade entirely for themselves. So Chaucer is siding with John of Gaunt. And remember, Tom, in the Peasants' Revolt, mobs attacking, you know, Lombards and stuff, Flemings. There was the sense of xenophobia. And he's on the wrong side of that from the point of view of the London mob, isn't he, Chaucer? Right. And in 1374, he is appointed controller of the wool custom, which basically means that, you know, I mean, he's the man responsible for organizing the entire kind of wool trade from London to the continent. And he does it brilliantly. I mean, he's clearly an amazingly effective civil servant and kind of operator. So he holds the job for over a decade and, you know, kind of reading about what his life, so there's a wonderful biography by Marion Turner, Chaucer, A European Life. She gives a brilliant portrait of Chaucer as in his role as controller of the wool custom. And there's kind of something weirdly modern about him. Again, you know, this idea that Chaucer is a kind of hinge between the medieval and the modern. So he has this grace and favor apartment above Aldgate, which is literally one of the Roman gates in the city walls. And he has this kind of flat, basically, above the gate. And his place of work is an office near the tower. And so he's walking to work. So he's commuting. And this is very, very unusual. People don't normally do this. So he's one of the very earliest London commuters that we know of. Did you not want to call this episode 
the first commuter. Well, I thought it might be. <laughs> I, mean, got, I think that it gives him a kind of a vividness, right? A sense of the contemporaneous that perhaps otherwise he wouldn't have. I have to say that has gone on the honours board of mad Tom Holland ideas. <laughs> but anyway, continue. But it is a dangerous job because he is in the kind of, you know, the crosshairs of this venomous rivalry between the monopolists in London, between John of Gaunt. And also it has to be said that he has some quite unsavoury associates. So one of his family associates is Sir Richard Lyons, again, who we mentioned in the Peasants Revolt episode, who was a fabulously corrupt associate of John of Gaunt. He was a wine rather than a wool monopolist. And he comes to a very, very sticky end in the Peasants' Revolt. So not only is Gaunt's palace sacked, but Sir Richard Lyons is dragged out from his house and has his head chopped off by a mob on Cheapside in the heart of the city. And so you you have to wonder, well, you know, how close did Chaucer come to being torn to pieces? Because he's absolutely in the eye of the storm. So think about that flat above the Aldgate. The Aldgate is the gate through which the rebels from Essex and Suffolk come flooding into the city. So we don't know if Chaucer is there. Yeah, hiding in the back room. But if he was, I mean, it must have been terrifying. There's only a single reference to the Great Revolt in the whole of his poetry, and it comes in another of the tales in the Canterbury Tales told by the nun's priest. So that's a priest who's attendant on one of the nuns. And he's describing a tale about a cock that gets abducted from a farmyard by a fox. And there's this great kind of turmoil, all the hens kind of flying up, startled. So hideous was the noise, God bless us all. Jack Straw and all his followers in their brawl were never half so shrill for all their noise when they were murdering those Flemish boys as that day's hue and cry upon the fox. So you have there both the din and a kind of sense of horror at the murder of the Flemings who were part of a basically a kind of mass lynching. Mm. And it kind of sounds personal. I mean, it's kind of sounds like it's coming from maybe something he'd observed. We don't know. But what we do know for sure is that basically Chaucer survives it. Yeah. And I think he is a survivor. He's a man with a kind of a genius for negotiating the rapids of the age. And maybe something of, of Shakespeare in that, do you think? Shakespeare also, I mean, he seems to be a kind of smooth operator. Right. Yeah. Well, I mean, to keep his head in turbulent times, I mean, not just the Black Death, but as you say, the Peasants' Revolt. He must have had something about him. But also the fact that he's taken up by powerful people. You would never thrive in medieval court if you were a kind of difficult, prickly, you know, unimpressive person. Yeah. So I think he's very kind of emollient, very diplomatic. He's clearly very charming, I guess. I mean, he yeah. he keeps people on side. When he speaks foreign languages, he's used to dealing with foreign bigwigs, all of that sort of business. So you do get some sense of him, don't you? Yeah. But because, you know, he's been through the Hundred Years' War, the plague peasants revolt all the convulsions of the age he is very aware that he's living through a kind of effectively a period of social and cultural transformation and he himself is an embodiment of that because he's the grandson of a pub landlord who is now a relative of the duke of lancaster yeah so he's aware that you know it's a period where traditional hierarchies are being upended mm -hmm. and again that idea of people meeting up from all walks of life in the Tabard Inn and preparing to go on pilgrimage. If this is signaling an escape from, you know, from plague, from a period of social distancing through the winter, I think it is also signaling a society in flux. And I'm sure that that's why Chaucer chooses the framing device he does. It's an opportunity for bringing people from all different walks of life right. together. And this is also what is newfangled, to use Chaucer's own word, his own neologism. 
it's what's newfangled about the Canterbury Tales because it's a poem that is embracing multiple perspectives, men, women from an incredible array of social backgrounds. And there's been nothing like it in English literature, in any kind of document or record that we have from medieval England before. So to quote Marion Turner, who's brilliant on this, characters from ordinary life who talk about themselves and their own experiences in detail, narrating personal histories and encouraging sympathetic responses and identifications. And I read her book very shortly, Dominic, after I read your book on the early 80s, Who Dares Wins. Right. What I loved about Who Dares, I loved loads about it, but I loved the social richness of it. Oh, that's nice. The way in which people from every walk of life, you talk about the royal family and you talk about unemployed people and you talk about football and you talk about new romantics and you talk about snooker and everything is there. (laughs) You love the snooker. (laughs) And I was kind of thinking that the Canterbury Tales, basically, it's a prefiguring of that understanding of society as being inherently interesting in all its complexity and richness. Yeah. And so Chaucer is, you know, he's a great poet, great, great poet great literary figure, but he's not, you know, we're not the rest is literature, but he's significant, I think, because his poetry enables us for the first time, if you like, to write a kind of Sandbrookian history. So that comparison with Geoffrey Chaucer, Tom, has dogged me all my life, to be honest. <laughs> but do you think, would you recognise? I hadn't thought of the comparison with myself, it's fair to say. I'm not saying, just to be clear, I'm not, um. <laughs> I'm not comparing you as a literary figure with Chaucer. Oh, that's disappointing. But the reason the Canterbury Tales is fascinating from the historian's point of view, I think, yeah. is that you get ordinary people. You could call them ordinary people. Yeah. It's a panorama of a kind that has never previously existed, right? Yes. It's a social mosaic. And I'm just thinking whether there is any precedent for it, whether there is anything like it. I don't think there is. Certainly not in English. And I don't really think in other literatures either. Okay. So that's Chaucer. And maybe in the second half, Tom, we can get into the Canterbury Tales a little bit. Because as you said, we're not the rest of literature. But the point of the Canterbury Tales is not just that it's a magnificent work of literary craftsmanship, but it's an incredible historical document. Yeah. And so we'll tease out some of that after the break. (sighs) Spring is a time of renewal. So why not refresh your home with a little help from Blinds.com? Blinds.com invented a better way to shop for custom window treatments. There's no pushy salespeople in your home or inflated showroom prices. Free samples, free shipping, and our 100% satisfaction guarantee can put the spring back into your step and into your home too. Shop Blinds.com now and save up to 45%. Up to 45% off at Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. Lordings, quoth he, now hearken for the best. But take it not, I pray you, in disdain. 
this is the point, to speak it plat and plain, that each of you to shorten with your way in this voyager shall tell and tale as twee. To Canterbury would, I mean it so. And homeward he shall tell another too <laughs> of adventurers that Willem have befall, and which of you that beareth him best of all, that is to say, that telleth in this case tailors of best sentence, and most solace, shall have a supper at Yala cost here in this place, as sitting by this post, when that ye come again from Canterbury. Who knows what it means? Tom, you know what it means. <laughs> well, what does it mean? You give the translation. <laughs> so basically, the deal is this. They've met in that tabard, a pub, haven't they? Yeah, in Southwark. And the guy who's the host has said to them, you know, you've got this pilgrimage. You're going to go on this massive expedition to Canterbury, very Tom Holland behavior. And each of you will tell stories to each. Isn't that right? To each on the way out. Yeah. To each on the way back. And it'll pass the time, but it's also a competition because when we all get back to Canterbury, the person who has told the best stories by sort of popular acclamation... Well, no, the host will decide. Yeah, but he'll presumably take the temperature of the company, Tom. Of course, of course, yes. Everybody, they will all contribute and they will buy dinner for the person who's done the best job. And that's the fun of it. Yeah. It's a game. It's a contest. Exactly. And this idea of people speaking in succession from different walks of society, I think someone in the late 14th century reading this would automatically assume that it would go on to express what is the absolutely traditional kind of medieval love of hierarchy and formality. The idea that everyone has his station, his or her station, and that therefore the ordering of the tales should reflect that. So the setup is given us, the pilgrims are going to Canterbury, they're accompanied by the host, there's a guy called Harry Bailey, and they draw lots. And the first person to tell a tale is the guy who is the most socially significant, who is the knight who we've already mentioned. Yeah. And he then tells a very kind of traditional chivalric romance. And I think that people would think, okay, we know where we're going with this. It's going to go from the highest to the lowest. Right. But right from the beginning, everything is basically jumbled. And even before the knight starts his tale, you're aware that things aren't quite as you, if you're a guy in the 14th century, as you would expect. So first of all, the division between fiction and reality is being blurred. So Harry Bailey, the host, he actually exists. He's not a fictional character. We have over 20 contemporary records that name him. He's not specifically linked to the tabard, but we know that he was an ostia, an innkeeper in Southwark. So he probably did run and own the tabard. And he was also an MP. So he's a significant figure. And Chaucer knows him. Chaucer does know him. Yes. And this must be a tremendous joke. Yes. Maybe an in-joke between the two of them. Yes. And all their circle yeah. people in London. He's probably a well-known London character. I mean, he's an MP. He's a yeah. big landlord in Southwark. And of course, the other real person who's in the poem is Chaucer himself. But <laughs> it's kind of Chaucer and it's kind of not because Chaucer has to tell a tale and he's terrible. His tale is so bad that the host stops it. Right, yeah. So he tells a tale of a knight called Sir Topas. So one of the descriptions of Sir Topas, he had a seemly nose. <laughs> right, very good. And the host just says, oh, this is terrible. Stop it. <laughs> right. And then Chaucer tells another story and it's incredibly boring. And it's that sense that we're not just in a fictional world. We are in a world where a mirror is being held up to reality and distorting it. So Tom. It's like Curb Your Enthusiasm with Larry David. Yeah, that's exactly what it's like. Yeah. Chaucer is Larry David. Yeah. That's exactly what it's like. Brilliant comparison. 
But of course, more significantly and intriguingly, the social hierarchy is blurred. So as I say, you begin with the knight and classically in the medieval understanding of society, it's tripartite. So you have those who fight, those who pray, those who labor. And in the Canterbury Tales, you do get kind of representative figures for those three classes of person. So of course you have the knight, you have a parson, Mm -hmm. and you have a plowman. And the plowman is the brother of the parson. And Chaucer seems to admire all three. Yeah, Terry Jones famously wrote a book arguing that actually the knight was an evil mercenary. But I think that's generally not accepted. The knight is a figure of chivalry and prowess. He's a very parfit, gentle knicked, is the famous Chaucerian phrase. The parson is a person who is unlike a lot of the clerical figures, so like the pardoner, like the summoner, like the monk, all of whom are, are kind of corrupt in various ways. The prioress, who is a shocking anti-Semite. The parson is an admirable figure. And the plowman, likewise, is a person who's very close to Christ. So he seems to respect all three. But he understands that that paradigm is inadequate to explain the complexities of the society in which he is living. Right. You know, he's a Londoner. He's witnessed how complex society is. He also, he has personal experience of the way in which attempts to impose traditional old-fashioned hierarchies on society simply don't work. So in the first episode, we talked about the statute of laborers. Yes, trying to regulate labor and wages after the Black Death. Yes, introduced in 1351. And this is very important as an explanation for what, since late 19th century, has been a very, very notorious episode in the life of Chaucer. So in 1873, documents were found that pointed to a case that had been brought against Chaucer by a guy called Thomas Staunton in 1379. And it recorded an agreement, what was called a quit claim, by a woman called Cecily Champagne. And Cecily agreed not to sue Chaucer over a case of what in legal Latin was referred to as a raptus. Hmm. And a raptus can be translated as a rape. And so ever since then, there's been this kind of shadow over Chaucer's reputation. Was he a rapist? Is this what the court case was about? But a couple of years ago, documents were found that showed that actually what the raptus referred to was a case that had been brought under the statute of laborers. Because Thomas Staunton, it turns out, had been the employer of Cecily and Chaucer had offered her higher wages to work for him. Oh, right. And the quick claim, Cecily's quick claim, basically I'm quoting here the scholars who discovered the document, offered the most expedient legal path under the statute of laborers for both Chaucer and Champagne to demonstrate that she had left her employment with Staunton voluntarily, as opposed to being coerced or abducted before commencing work for Chaucer. So in other words, few, Chaucer isn't a rapist. He is a guy who is leaning into social and economic change, who is frustrating the statute of laborers, who is basically taking advantage of the fact that society has become much more mobile. Mm. And if you're a conservative, much more chaotic. And I think you can look at the Canterbury Tales and see it as a kind of literary equivalent of what Chaucer is doing there, a refusal to be bound by a kind of, you know, a literary equivalent of the statute of laborers. So when the knight has finished telling his tale, the host turns to the person that the reader would expect, which is a figure from the church, because if you had a man who fights, then you expect to have a man who prays. Yes. And so the host turns to the monk, but he gets interrupted. He gets interrupted by a miller. And the miller is pissed. He's vulgar. Yeah. He's low class. He's absolutely not the kind of person who should be following a knight 
and who should be interrupting a monk. But he's so drunk and he's so determined that he just carries on with his tale. And the Miller's Tale- It's very famous. Yeah, very famous. Very famous. And the Miller's Tale, famously quoted by Prokel Horam in A White Shade of Pale, mm -hmm. is very, very rude. Yeah. So there's a lot of- Buttocks. People kissing asses, yes. farting, buttocks being branded, all this kind of thing. It's the story that basically, if you do the Canterbury Tales at school, you hope this is the one the teacher's going to choose, and they never do. Because it is funny. Yeah. Definitely funny. But in its essentials, it's basically the same as The Knight's Tale. It's the same plot, because The Knight's Tale had been all about two men competing for a lady. And The Miller's Tale is essentially the same. Mm. And The Miller says that he is quiting the knight, so he's paying the knight back. And this is this is very disruptive, right? You know, in the wake of the Great Revolt and the social turbulence of the age. I mean, it's a very, very bold thing for Chaucer to be doing. And from that point on, the hierarchy is completely disrupted. So the pilgrims are not bound by the traditional social classes. Not only do you have millers, you have merchant, a cook, a shipman, you have a lawyer, you have various people from London guilds, you have a doctor, mm. you have a yeoman who comes galloping up. All kinds of things are happening all the time. And I think that there is one of the pilgrims more than any other who embodies that sense of upheaval and novelty and, I guess, newfangledness, again, to use that Chaucerian word. Yeah. And that's probably the most famous of all the pilgrims, and that's the wife of Bath. All right. So the wife of Bath how many times has she been married? Five times. She's been married five times and she tells the pilgrims that she's looking for a sixth husband. Terrifying. <laughs> Describe her to the, to the listeners, Tom. So she's very handsome. She's very rosy cheeked, although Chaucer specifies that she has a, a gap tooth. She's very broad hipped. She wears bright red stockings. Scandalous. So very striking figure. She's a cloth maker. Yeah. She is rich enough that she's a serial pilgrim. So she's been to Rome, she's been to Santiago de la Compostela. So those mm -hmm. are the two great pilgrimage sites in Europe. And she's been to Jerusalem three times. Was it possible for people to have gone multiple times to Jerusalem? Yes. It's not beyond the bounds of possibility. But it would be very expensive, surely. Very expensive, yes. So the wife of Bath is clearly quite a woman. Yeah. And she tells a tremendous tale, which is about rape. This is why the idea that Chaucer himself was a rapist is so unsettling, because mm -hmm. the wife of Bath is a very, very, I think it's not too anachronistic to use the word, a very feminist figure. So her story is about a knight who has committed a rape. He's a rapist, and he is threatened with execution. He's at the court of King Arthur, but Guinevere intervenes and says that if he can find out what it is that women most desire within a set period of time, then he will be spared execution. And the knight kind of goes around trying to find it, can't find it. And then he meets a very ugly old woman who tells him the answer. And the answer is that what women most desire is sovereignty over their husbands. <laughs> right. And the price she demands for revealing this is that the knight will marry her. Yeah. And so the knight thinks, oh God, I've got to. So on their wedding night, you know, they go to bed and the knight is, is appalled that he's in bed with this ugly old woman. And she's very upset. And... She ends up offering him a choice. She says that he can choose. She has kind of magical powers. He can choose to have an old and ugly wife who will be true and loyal to him. Mm. So in other words, she will remain as she is. Or she will change and become very, very beautiful, very youthful, but she won't be faithful. So which would he rather have? And the knight kind of ponders it. And then he says, I can't decide. You decide. 
And his wife is so delighted that he has surrendered sovereignty to her mm -hmm. that she allows him to have his cake and eat it. So she turns into this kind of beautiful young woman. Yeah. And she's very faithful. Oh, heartwarming. So there you go. Yeah. So this is the story that the wife of Bath tells. But the thing that makes it one of the greatest, greatest pieces of writing in the whole of English is the prologue. So the kind of the introduction to it, mm. where the wife of Bath speaks in her own voice at twice the length that she devotes to her story. In here, she's telling the story of the five husbands that she's married. And on the one hand, she's kind of cheerfully admitting all the tricks that she's employed to kind of bend them to her will. But at the same time, she's describing the, the domestic abuse that several of them have inflicted on her. Yeah. So who would suppose the woe that in my heart was and pain? So that's, you know, you see into the kind of the depths of her misery when she's suffering abuse. But at the same time, she's very, very rebellious, witty, larger than life, celebrating sex, refusing to be cowed by the fact that she's kind of getting on in life. Yeah. And absolutely contemptuous of the arguments that men traditionally present saying that women should be subordinate to men and that wives should be subordinate to husbands. And she is kind of making the point, which you know, is, is one that's absolute standard now in feminist theory, that men can write misogynist texts because they're men. Yeah. And because in the Middle Ages and, and back into late antiquity, you know, her husbands are always quoting the church fathers. And she's saying, well, they would say that. They're men. Yeah, of course. Exactly. Yeah. You know, if lions were writing it, they would write it about lions. And again, to quote Marion Turner, who wrote a wonderful biography of the wife of Bath, she says of the wife of Bath that she is the first ordinary woman in English literature. By that, I mean the first mercantile, working, sexually active woman, not a virginal princess or queen, not a nun, a witch, not a damsel in distress, nor a functional servant character, not an allegory. Right. But a living, breathing, flesh and blood woman with agency and with you know, desires and anxieties and all these things of her own. I mean, she's basically Chaucer's full staff. Yeah. And Marion Turner in her book suggests that actually she's a direct influence on full staff. So she, she is a, a literary figure, but like so much in Chaucer's poetry, she tells us a lot about what is convulsive about society in England in the wake of the Black Death. Right. So why is she a wife of Bath? Well, Marion Turner in her book points out that there is a lot of cloth manufacturing going on yeah. around Bath. Bath is near the Cotswolds, the wool trade, the booming kind of wool villages and towns. Absolutely. Yeah. So Tom, somebody listening to or reading the story in the 14th century, they would immediately say, oh, rich. Yeah. You know, an area where there's a lot of social and economic change. Yeah. It's kind of, you know, it's like she's a tech entrepreneur, I guess would be the equivalent for right. us. She's, she's someone who is in, you know, a hot spot of the economy yeah. and one that explains how she's as rich as she is. And it's not surprising that she's a woman because what has also happened in the wake of the Black Death is that it has accentuated trends, not just within England, but across much of Northern Europe, so Flanders as well, and Germany and Scandinavia, in which women can increasingly choose who they want to marry. They're maybe having fewer children compared, say, to women in um, the Mediterranean, and they can marry repeatedly. And this gains them capital, which they can then kind of invest in things like, say, cloth manufacturer. Right. And probably more women are involved in the economy in this period in England, in the Netherlands, whatever, in the lowlands than anywhere else in the world. 
they probably are exercising higher standards of numeracy, higher standards of literacy. So again, to quote Marion Turner, there is widespread agreement that in the second half of the 14th century, many English women had more choices and more autonomy than they had at other points in history or in other places. So the wife of Bath, you know, her feminism is something that Chaucer is not inventing. Clearly, he recognizes that it's an, an expression of something that is distinctive about the society in which he's living. Right. And the whole emphasis on the wife of Bath, you know, she's a serial person who's marrying. This is a trend in England at this time. The idea that widows marry is very, very disapproved by the church fathers. And this is what the wife of Bath is always, you know, complaining about. <laughs> she's all in favor of it. And just as the church fathers cite scripture saying it's a sin, she cites and often misquotes scripture to say it's absolutely brilliant, absolutely fine. Yeah. And what women can do in this period is that they marry very young. So 12 is, you know, is when you basically, as a girl, you kind of enter the marriage economy. And girls will often be married to husbands who are much older than them. So the merchant's tale also is about this. It's about a very elderly man marrying a very young girl. Yeah. And that means the husbands die. The girl, she can be quite young. She pockets a lot of the inheritance. So under the common law, widow can keep a third of the husband's property for life. And if you're, you know, your husband's dead when you're 18, you marry again. Yeah. He dies, you know, you're 25. And so it goes on. You can accrue quite a lot of property. So you build your fortune. Yeah. And this is particularly true of women who are involved in trade. So in London, a widow inherits the marital home for life. Yeah. That's not the case under the common law, but it is for merchants in London. And in London, a widow can keep a third of all the kind of the movable goods mm. that a husband has, again, for life. So, you know, it's possible for women to end up very, very wealthy. And the wife of Bath is, in that sense, the embodiment of that cultural trend. Right. And there is a real life example that parallels the wife of Bath that illustrates just how wealthy a woman could become by remarrying. And that is none other than Chaucer's own granddaughter. Mm, that's Alice, right? Yes. So Chaucer dies in 1400, shortly after Henry IV has come to the throne. And of course, Chaucer is, you know, he's been a loyal associate of John of Gaunt. Mm. So He's survived Richard II's reign. And now that Henry has become king, probably the last poem that Chaucer writes is a poem asking him for a bit of money. <laughs> <laughs> you know, he's kind of, he's done amazingly well for yeah. a person of his social background, but not as well as his granddaughter Alice does. So by the age of 24, she's twice widowed. Gosh. And both of them have left her with a lot of money. And she then goes on to marry William de la Pole who will in due course become the Duke of Suffolk and who is the grandson of the Michael de la Pole, who was the chancellor under Richard II and got attainted. Right, who we talked about last time. Yeah, wow. Right. So the Duke of Suffolk himself, the one that Alice has, has married, he also gets attainted and actually gets executed. But Alice keeps hold of all his, his lands and property. And she remains a widow for 25 years and she speculates and she increases her wealth and she basically becomes, I mean, one of the richest people in the whole kingdom, hugely respected, massive, massive kind of operator. Yeah. And amazingly, her son, yes. John de la Pole, ends up marrying Elizabeth of York, who is the younger sister of Edward IV and Richard III. Yeah. So she is the aunt of the princes in the tower. Right. And she has a son. Yes. And her son, Tom, so the son of Elizabeth of York and John de la Pole, this is very confusing, that would make him Chaucer's great-great-grandson. He's also called John de la Pole. He is. 
and he becomes the heir to Richard III. So in 1484, yes. Richard III names this John de la Pole, yeah. Chaucer's great-great-grandson, as his heir, which is incredible. And of course, Richard III gets defeated by Henry VII, who marries Elizabeth of York's niece, also called Elizabeth, very confusing. Mm. And John de la Pole never ends up becoming king, but he, you know, he's still very much on the scene. And two years after the Battle of Bosworth in 1487, Lambert Simnel raising the banner of rebellion. John de la Pole is there and he dies at the Battle of Stoke, which Henry VII wins against Lambert Simnel. But I mean, amazing, amazing that Chaucer's heirs. They were that close to the throne. So Chaucer's great-great-grandson could have been king. Could have been king. Yeah. Crikey. That's not bad for... What was Chaucer the great-grandson or something of a... Of a pub landlord, of Al Murray. That's amazing. Yeah. So I think that, I mean, Chaucer's life is fascinating as an illustration of the social turbulence of the age Mm. and of just how far people could rise. And it's not surprising that Chaucer himself, who's so socially mobile, should have been so interested in that as a theme. And of course, there's a sense in which that aspect of him gets buried because he he very rapidly becomes, you know, the father of English literature, this great patriarchal figure. Yeah. The Canterbury Tales gets famously printed by Caxton, one of the first books to be printed in England. He's the first English writer to have a complete works. So uh, that happens in Henry VIII. And then the end of the 16th century, his tomb. So he's not buried in Westminster Abbey because he's a poet. He's buried in Westminster Abbey as a mark of respect from the monks who he'd associated with. Oh, right. But he gets put in a kind of improved tomb yeah. that suits his stature as the father of English literature. And Tom, we did say we're not the rest is literature, but he is the father of English literature, isn't he? Because it's not just what he does with the language, inventing all these words and phrases yeah. that we are so familiar with today, but he creates a way of writing, which as you said, is panoramic often very funny, is earthy, is sort of rooted in the concrete everyday realities of English life, that so many writers, I mean, Shakespeare and Dickens would be two obvious examples, have kind of picked up. Yeah. I mean, I'm not saying it's impossible that they would have done what they did without Chaucer, but Chaucer absolutely stands at the center of that tradition, doesn't he? He does. And I think his achievement is so great that it legitimizes for his literary heirs the idea that writing in English can be as prestigious as writing in Latin or French. Yeah. So, you know, all the great poetry of the 16th and 17th centuries would kind of be unthinkable, really, without Chaucer's inspiration. And the other, I mean, purely literary way in which Chaucer is massively influential is that because he's writing in the London dialect, it cements the sense of southeastern english as being i mean not received pronunciation but being the kind of mm. the model that various other english dialects will start to be shaped by over the course of the 15th and 16th centuries right and so purely as a literary figure i mean he's the first great writer of the language that has become the global lingua franca mm. and he's a poet who i mean i know we've kind of made a joke about how he's impossible to understand <laughs> But actually, he's not that hard to understand. If you make, you know, it doesn't take that much of an effort. And he is a great, great poet whose achievements, as I said, I found them, you know, they gave me kind of great comfort and distraction in the first weeks of the lockdown. Yeah. So I'm very happy to have, have done him. But I think you can also justify doing an episode of The Rest is History on Chaucer because he's so fascinating as a window onto 
the events that we've been describing. All right. Brilliant. Well, thank you, Tom. That was a, it was not just a tour de force, actually. It was a tour d'horizon of medieval England. Now, the good news for listeners who've enjoyed this is that we are going to pause now, as we often like to do, but we will be returning later in the year, won't we, to this period, and you'll be taking up the story of what happens next. Henry the Fourth, parts one and two, and uh, Henry the Fifth, and Ashincourt, and um, one of the most evil characters in history, Joan of Arc, will be making her <laughs> debut on The Rest is History. And the good news for those of you who didn't enjoy this is that actually next week we'll be doing something different. But I don't believe such people exist, Tom, because everybody will have enjoyed this. <laughs> there will definitely be no Middle English in the next episode. Oh, that is disappointing. So on that bombshell, thank you very much, Tom. Thank you, everybody. And we'll see you next week. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? <laughs> well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts.